The Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World Described by the Sculptor Frederick Augusta Bartholdi This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World Described by the Sculptor Frederick Augusta Bartholdi Published for the benefit of the Pedestal Fund Prefatory Note The object of this monograph by M. Bartholdi needs little further explanation than it carries in its own reading. Certainly, the great American public will warmly sympathize with a publication which, aside from its unique value as a modest but bright little essay by a great sculptor on his own immortal work, will help to swell the fund so tardy in its accumulation till the energy of a leading journal gave it fresh life. In addition, however, to the pedestal fund proper, a further amount is needed, according to the statement of the committee, to provide for the cost of erecting the statue in place, for which Congress failed to make the expected appropriation. It is with this end in view that the following pages are offered to the public. The career of M. Bartholdi, the most distinguished living sculptor of colossal statuary, bears testimony to the genius and unselfish industry which fashioned the monument to liberty. Born at Colmar in 1833, like some of his predecessors in the plastic art, he started life as a painter. Though apprenticed to the famous Ari Schaefer, M. Bartholdi, following a natural bent, soon turned his attention to sculpture, and produced, at the early age of nineteen, a notable bas-relief of Francesca da Rimini. From that time forward his fame has grown with the years. Like the battle painters de Neuville and Detail, M. Bartholdi became inspired by the bloody Franco-German conflict, and produced in 1878 The Lion of Belfort, a colossal monument to the heroism of a beleaguered garrison carved in the solid rock. A plaster cast of this great work, together with his statue's grim Beval, now the property of the French nation, were, in 1878, among the chief attractions of the Paris Salon. The government bestowed on the sculptor the cross of the Legion of Honor, and at the Centennial Exhibition he was awarded the medal for sculpture for a remarkable exhibit of an early but powerful work termed Genius in the Grasp of Misery, and the later productions Peace and the Young Vine Grower, all in bronze. Among his other important works may be named Vincenzo Storia, the Old Gallic Patriot, the graceful statue of Lafayette now standing in Union Square, New York, and three tributes to his native town, a fountain dedicated in 1863 to the memory of Martin Schogarter, a painter, a statue of Admiral Brust, and one of General Rapp. In the face of great difficulties, M. Bartholdi has, for over ten years, struggled manfully to see his gigantic work erected on the threshold of the New World. And it may be well here to state that his labor has been, from the onset, a labor of love and not of profit. For strange though it may seem, the sculptor has derived no pecuniary benefit from his arduous task. In a recent letter to the writer, he declares that for long years he has made many serious sacrifices of time and money in consummating this great life purpose. But, if the burden had been hard to bear, he has found his reward. In consecrating a tribute to liberty, he has fashioned the eighth wonder of the world. Alan Thorndike Rice The Statue of Liberty History of the Work of the French-American Union the account which I have been asked to prepare of the work of the French-American Union, of its history and its accomplishment, 
is a somewhat delicate thing for me to do because of the difficulty of treating properly a subject in which i am obligated often to speak of myself apart from this consideration however i willingly accept the task of preparing this account because it allows me to rectify many errors and to give correct information to those interested in this question if then the reader sees the i or the me appear frequently he will excuse me it will be the narrative form alone that will be the cause of it and he will understand that i have no desire to speak of myself and will see that the me appears only as much as is necessary for the development of the subject which i am to treat the origin of the work of the french american union is of so modest a character that it would be very difficult to search out if i did not recount it myself that makes necessary a little recital of some circumstances in my own life one evening twenty years ago I had been dining at the home of my most regretted and illustrious friend, Monsieur Laboulet, and his guests were smoking in the conservatory of his charming retreat, Glavigne, near Versailles. It was a gathering of men eminent in politics and letters. The talk fell upon international relations, upon the sentiments of Italy towards France. Someone said that gratitude could not exist among nations, that the least material interest, that the lightest political breath, would break every tie of that sort. Coming to the United States, the remark was added that France could no more count on the remembrance of the past. Monsieur Laboulet observed that in the case of Italy there had never been a popular tradition of friendship, that in 1859 a service had been done her, but she had been made to feel that France had repaid herself for it, and that fact was sufficient to make the remembrance unpleasant to the Italians. It was a wholly different thing in the case of other nations or peoples with whom there was a genuine flow of sympathy, caused, it might be, by experiences common to the two nations. It might be by affinity of aspiration, or by the influence of certain feelings which served as a bond of union. Coming to the American nation, he said that it had more sympathy for France than for any other European nation, that this sentiment did not bear the stamp of gratitude, but was based upon the remembrance of the community of thoughts and of struggles sustained with common aspirations. The Frenchmen who fought in the United States spilled their blood for the principles that they hoped to see prevail in France and in the world. The first volunteers went away in spite of the government, and all the world recalls the difficulties encountered by Lafayette at his departure. There is then, he said, in that struggle for independence, not a simple service rendered to a friendly nation, but a fraternity of feelings, a community of efforts and of emotions, and when hearts have beaten together, something always remains among nations as among individuals. The proof, he added, is that in the United States they hold up to honor the remembrance of the common glories. They love Lafayette and his volunteers as they revere the American heroes. In the public mind this remembrance is much clearer than that of the political action of the French government. No one in the United States speaks of the Treaty of Versailles, which made the United States what they are. Many Americans are ignorant even of the date of that treaty. On the other hand, everyone recalls the names and the deeds of the French soldiers. There, said Monsieur Laboulet, is the basis of the sentiments which are felt in the United States towards the French, an indestructible basis, a sentiment honorable to the Americans as to us, and if a monument were to be built in America as a memorial to their independence, I should think it very natural if it were built by united effort, if it were a common work of both nations. I cite these words from memory, since they have never been put in print so far as I know, but this conversation interested me so deeply that it remained fixed in my memory and if I am not able to give the precise form of it, at least the ideas are exact, because they may be found in the addresses of M. Laboulet in regard to the work of the French-American Union. 
This conversation came back to my mind a long time afterwards, at the period of the War of 1870. I was with the Army in the East, where we struggled for long months against the enemy and against our severe sufferings, always hopeful, always with the faith in the future. I was sent to Bordeaux to get some arms and munitions which came from America on board of the vessels of the Transatlantic Company. It was with pain that I heard the officers of the vessel speak of the demonstrations in the United States in favor of Germany. One of them, however, defended the Americans. He said those clamorous demonstrations were the work of Germans who had been in America only a short time that those who have been long in the United States respected the traditions of their new country, that the greater part of them remembered how they had been ground underfoot, condemned to death, obliged to fly from their native land, when they had dreamed of possessing some liberties, of enjoying equality, that those who rejoiced over the success of Germany rejoiced rather in the fact of a united Germany, and in the hope of seeing that unity result in the political and social development of their former country, for the happiness of their relatives and friends who remained therein, but that these very men were too much Americans and citizens of the great free people to feel hatred towards France, or to rejoice over the misfortunes of the nation which helped to create their new country, whose prosperity they enjoy today. All those comments, those varied opinions, excited my lively interest. I had always felt a sympathetic curiosity concerning America, and a lively desire to know the country. When the war was over, I could not go to my native land, Alsace, which was shut against me by the Germans. At Paris, the Commune was in power, and civil war was raging. After a short stay in Switzerland, I resolved to take a journey in order to withdraw myself from all the painful impressions of the year through which I had just passed, and the idea came to me of going to visit America. I went to Versailles to see again the friends whom I had not seen in so many dolorous months. I found myself again at the house of Monsieur Labolet, with Messieurs Lafayette, Henri Martin, Rosmou, Volkiski, de Gasparin, and other distinguished men, whose sympathies towards the United States were well known. They talked again of American sentiment, of the shipments which the Americans had made to Paris, of the diverse opinions which prevailed in America. I repeated all that I had heard said on board the transatlantic steamships. Monsieur Laboulet took up again his views as expressed previously, and declared that without any doubt there would be at the hundredth anniversary of the independence of the United States a movement patriotic and French in America. Go to see that country, said he to me. You will study it. You will bring back to us your impressions. Propose to our friends over there to make with us a monument, a common work, in remembrance of the ancient friendship of France and the United States. We will take up a subscription in France. If you find a happy idea, a plan that will excite public enthusiasm, we are convinced that it will be successful on both continents, and we will do a work that will have a far-reaching moral effect. It was then, in these convictions of M. Laboulet, that the germ of the monument of the French-American Union was found. I have related these fragments of conversation in order that they may show how the idea had its birth and development. But I do it still more to answer those who, with an evil spirit of disparagement, have desired to diminish the value of the work by treating it as the personal fantasy of an artist. I may fairly claim a certain merit in the invention of the idea, in working it out, and in carrying the undertaking to completion, but it has a value greater than that. It has roots deeper than an artist's ambition. The popular subscription in France has shown it, and Messieurs Laboulet, Lafayette, de Tocqueville, de La Satire, and others foresaw that depth of public sentiment when they said that if a method of stirring up the public in the two countries, by means of some thrilling suggestion, some sound and luminous idea, could be found, 
the success which would follow would astonish everyone. Above all, then, should be honored those faithful friends of the United States who have shown in this manner their faith and their enthusiasm. This is the moment, if ever, to recall them to mind. Alas, they are no longer here to see the accomplishment of the work, but before leaving us they saw the certainty of success, and their benediction will accompany the Statue of Liberty. Imbued with the thoughts of those eminent men, furnished with their letters of recommendation, enjoying full authority to express myself or to engage myself in their names, I departed for America. In the course of the voyage I formed some conception of a plan of a monument, but I can say that at the view of the harbor of New York the definite plan was first clear to my eyes. The picture that is presented to the view when one arrives at New York is marvelous, when, after some days of voyaging, in the pearly radiance of a beautiful morning, is revealed a magnificent spectacle of those immense cities, of those rivers extending as far as the eye can reach, festooned with masts and flags. When one awakes, so to speak, in the midst of that interior sea covered with vessels, some giants in size, some dwarfs, which swarm about, puffing, whistling, swinging the great arms of their uncovered walking beams, moving to and fro like a crowd upon a public place, it is thrilling. It is indeed the new world, which appears in its majestic expanse with the ardor of its glowing life. Was it not wholly natural that the artist was inspired by this spectacle? Yes, in this very place shall be raised the Statue of Liberty, grand as the idea which it embodies, radiant upon the two worlds. If, then, the form of the accomplished work is mine, to the Americans I owe the thought and the inspiration which gave it birth. I was conscious when I landed at New York that I had found the idea which my friends had hoped for. The second part of my mission remained to be accomplished, to learn if the dream could become a reality. For that, it was necessary at the outset to Americanize myself a little, to become acquainted with the country, the persons and the things, to become familiar with all the difficulties in order to hit upon the means of triumphant success. I traveled from the east to the west, from the north to the south, and visited nearly all the great cities of the United States, and a great number of little ones that have, perhaps, become very great ones which I should not now recognize. In short, I made an artistic journey through the cities, and through the wild regions as well, painting and designing, finding acquaintances everywhere, and I employed my time so well for five months that I brought back a more general knowledge of the United States than many Americans possess. As to acquaintance with the world and with individuals, I received a speedy initiation, thanks to the distinguished men whom I had the honor of knowing. They were perhaps the cause that I am reproached everywhere for my excessive partiality for Americans. I retain always in lively remembrance the welcome that I received in the course of this first journey, and the friendship with which I was honored by men who were illustrious everywhere. I shall always recall Longfellow, who received me as if he had always known me, who, when I left him, pressed my hand as if he wished electrically to convey that pressure to his friends in France, charging me to express to them all his enthusiasm for their plans. It gave me so much pleasure to see that noble figure that, several times I made the journey to Boston to pass some hours there. In speaking of noble faces, there was another which impressed me much, that of Senator Sumner. I was in his company often at Washington. I was filled with admiration of his intellectual power, of the fineness of his spirit and his working faculties, I went to pass the evening at his house, interrupting him in his labors, and then, with extraordinary animation, he told me a hundred charming anecdotes, he questioned me about a thousand things in French politics or letters that he was far better acquainted with than I. 
I had the pleasure of taking him to the house of Gambetta, whom he desired to know. They had a long conversation, lasting more than an hour, and of the liveliest interest. I shall always remember the last words of Mr. Sumner, who, in going out, inclining his majestic figure, said with a meaning smile, I shall always believe that it was a great misfortune for France that Henry IV coined so neat a phrase to take the city of Paris. But I perceive that I let myself wander away too easily, and play truant when I think of the persons whom I had the pleasure of meeting in that first journey. I have of necessity seen much of the world, and some strong friendships remain to me, a product, as it were, of the moral freemasonry which rules in humanity, and brings it about that certain persons enter into each other's thoughts at the onset, as if they had known each other for a long time. I stopped to speak of those two men, the honor and boast of the United States, because it was delightful to me to call up the remembrance of them, and to bring to them the tribute of my respect in recalling the sympathy with which they honored me. Among the nobilities to whom I had the honor of being presented, I will mention General Grant, President of the United States at that time, General Meade, General Sheridan, Mr. Peter Cooper, Mr. Cyrus Field, Mr. Agadze, Colonel Forney, and other members of the press. All the names are no longer in my recollection. I received a most cordial welcome at the Union League Club in New York and in Philadelphia. Finally, the kindness with which I was welcomed everywhere showed the profound consideration enjoyed by my eminent fellow countrymen under whose auspices I had come to the United States. It was not very difficult for me to establish a good understanding on which to lay the foundation of the plan of my Parisian friends. I had made a sketch in watercolors of the Monument of Liberty on Bedloe's Island, and after becoming assured among my kindly approving friends of the impression that the plan would produce, I acquired the certainty that when we should begin in France, the United States would second us, and that the draft drawn by Messrs. Laboulet, Lafayette, Henry Martin, and their friends upon American sentiments would not be protested. On my return, M. Laboulet called together his friends at his house. I imparted the results of my journey, my impressions, the welcome that I had received, the co-laborers upon whom we could count, and I presented the plan of the monument which I had made. M. Henri Martin, whose place in the Academy has just been filled by the illustrious de la Seps, spoke of that reunion in an official address. I quote his words, in spite of the praises which they contain, because it is necessary for me to show the warmth of the sentiments which were manifested on that occasion. It was needful for us to discover a thought in harmony with the objects to be attained. The artist presented it to us in a form that bore the stamp of genius. He had conceived the celebration of the anniversary of independence, applying to it a sublime phrase which sums up the progress of modern times, liberty enlightening the world. M. Bartholdi proposed to represent this great idea by a statue of colossal proportions which would surpass all that have ever existed since the most ancient times. We adopted this plan with enthusiasm. A committee was organized. Artists, public men, constituted bodies, general councils, municipal councils, and chambers of commerce associated themselves in the enterprise, and the movement which has started from so modest an origin became a genuine national demonstration. Henry Martin May 27, 1879. I will not enter upon the detailed recital of all that the committee did. I will confine myself to recalling the main points which marked their action. The plan of the French-American Union was not launched upon the public until the end of the year 1874. Up to that time it had been organized, the means had been prepared, and I had made the first models. Subscription lists were circulated throughout France at that time. They bore at the head the following, prepared by Monsieur Laboulet. 
the monument of independence will be executed in common by the two peoples associated in this fraternal work as they were of old in establishing independence in this way we declare by an imperishable memorial the friendship that the blood spilled by our fathers of old sealed between the two nations it is a treaty of friendship which should be signed by all hearts which feel the love of their country monsieur labelle the appeal had a considerable response the birth of the work was celebrated on november sixth eighteen seventy five in the hotel of the louvre by a banquet which has remained memorable the arts letters the press politics sent their illustrious representatives both from america and from france in that hall whose echoes repeated again and again the names of franklin and of washington were seen near each other the representatives of the names of lafayette and of rochambeau near mr washburn minister plenipotentiary from the united states near mr fournet commissioner general in europe of the universal exposition of the same states were seen the members of the originating committee messieurs laboulet henry martin Dietz Monnier, Oscar de Lafayette, Jules de Lestorie, Paul de Ramoset, Waddington, Count Sorini, Cornelius de Witt, Jean Maché, Victor Bourri, Calbert, A. Abaldi, de Lagossi, de Tocqueville, Violette le Duc, Volesky. The banquet brought together men of all opinions, the chief ministers, deputies, the aide-de-camp and the secretary of the president of the republic the president of the municipal council of paris american and french generals accommodations authors savants and journalists representing all varieties and all shades of politics the success of the work was assured to raise the necessary funds there were festivals and exhibitions the illustrious author of faust gounod had composed a hymn for the statue of liberty it was sung at the opera and M. Laboulet held a conference. Going upon the stage, he said to his friends, See how much I love the Americans. At my great age, I mount the platform for them. To give at that time in America an idea of the work, the right hand of the statue was executed in its colossal proportions and sent to the exposition at Philadelphia. I returned to the United States at that period as a member of the French jury. In the same year took place in New York, the inauguration of the statue of Lafayette, with the execution of which I had been entrusted by the French government, and which was presented to the city in acknowledgment of the sympathy New York had testified to France by her numerous shipments at the time of the sufferings caused by the siege of Paris. These circumstances, which awakened patriotic feelings, gave an opportunity for getting the American public earnestly interested in the grand project of their French friends. A preparatory meeting was organized in the Century Club upon the call of W. M. Everts, S. D. Babcock, John Jay, W. H. Wickham, William H. Appleton, and Richard Butler, Secretary. At that meeting, a committee was organized, and a memorial was addressed to the Government of the United States, asking approval and support for what had been done by the French concerning the site of the monument. Congress, on the 22nd of February, 1877, voted in favor of accepting the gift of France, and setting apart Bedloe's Island for the site, in terms most flattering to the work and to the French nation. When I came back to France, the taking of subscriptions was going on actively. I executed the head of the statue for the Paris exhibition of 1878. In the following year, all the funds necessary for the execution of the statue were obtained. On July 7, 1880, the sending of the official notification to the American Committee of the progress of the work and of the date when the labors upon it would be completed was celebrated by a fete given to General Noyes, the United States Minister at Paris. 
This notification was sent to the United States upon an illuminated parchment signed by the members of the committee and all the Frenchmen who were present. The work of execution made rapid progress. On October 24, 1881, the anniversary of the Battle of Yorktown, all the pieces of the framework and of the base were put in place. The committee invited Mr. Morton, who was the new United States minister at that time, to come and drive the rivet of the first piece which was to be mounted. It was the left foot of the statue. Mr. Morton was cordially greeted by a numerous assemblage, and M. Laboulet bade him welcome. This ceremony left a strong impression on everyone, and it echoed through the country. The work on the statue was carried on from that time without slackening and with numerous force. It was constantly visited by the public, who showed a lively interest in it. It is estimated that some 300,000 persons visited the workshops. The statue was nearly finished in 1883. But as the work on the pedestal was not far enough advanced to permit of its erection, it was decided to leave it for some time exposed to view in Paris. On June 11, 1884, at a great dinner given by Mr. Morton to the Committee of the French-American Union and to the ministers of the French government, Monsieur Ferret, President of the Council, announced that the government had followed with the liveliest interest the progress of this work, which had been accomplished completely outside the range of its influence and by the energy of the private persons who had initiated it. He found that it was time for the government to associate itself with the undertaking, and the colossal Statue of Liberty presented to the Americans would be transported to New York on a state vessel under the official banner of France. Monsieur de Lesseps, who had been called to the presidency of the committee after the death of our dear and illustrious friend, Monsieur Laboulet, replied in most happy terms. He finished his address by proposing to appoint the official delivery of the Statue of Liberty to the United States Minister for the 4th of July and to deliver it in the presence of Monsieur Ferret and the ministers of the French government. The President of the Council willingly accepted the suggestion, and thus the ceremony which brilliantly crowned all the work of the Society of the French-American Union was decided upon. After the date of that ceremony, the statue remained exposed to public view, and the people continued to pour out to visit it until January 1, 1885. At that time the work of taking it down was begun. This was performed with great care, all the pieces being marked according to a classification which was simple and easy to follow. At the present hour, the whole work is packed up in 210 cases which, in a few days, are to be put on board the state vessel Isere at Rouen. They will arrive in the United States towards the end of May. Such is a succinct presentation of the work of the French-American Union. In order to complete this account, it remains for me to give some explanation of the artistic features and the process of the material execution. Colossal Sculpture The principal examples of this class, the methods of execution employed on the Statue of Liberty. I think that it may be timely to examine briefly the characteristics of colossal statuary, in view of the fact that the art has, from time to time, been the object of criticism. Many persons see in it only a striking production, and do not understand its peculiar laws, its difficulties, nor its artistic value. Colossal statuary does not consist simply in making an enormous statue. It ought to produce an emotion in the breast of the spectator, not because of its volume, but because its size is in keeping with the idea that it interprets, and with the place in which it ought to occupy. It should be used only in dealing with a limited order of ideas. Monsieur Lasbazier, in his work on the Colossi, has said, with reason, it is within its scope when it represents power, majesty, infinity, it can lay claim to that class of effects which are produced in us by the heaving of the boundless sea, the bellowing of the wind, the rolling of the thunder. 
Also, Monsieur Charles Blanc, the celebrated art critic, says on the same subject, Colossal statuary calls for faculties of peculiar power. It is an art of an exceptional character, which represents considerable difficulties. The artist who approaches these difficulties enters a somber temple, peopled with mysteries. He is brought face to face with struggles which few artists have experienced. No one can advise him. Nothing can guide him except his instinct, his faith, and his courage. Conception and execution are controlled by rigid and difficult laws. Faults once committed can be hidden by no subterfuge, and if the artist fails, the depth of his fall is commensurate with the immensity of his aspirations. Instead of producing many works in which he might attain success in a variety of ways, he exhausts a large part of his life upon a single task, on which he pours out all his treasures of passion, of study, and of enthusiasm. With these, he must without pause keep up his ardor during long years. Charles Blanc in La Tempe these words seem to me to answer in a large measure the criticisms of which colossal art is sometimes the object. Without wishing to make a detailed study of the colossal statues which have been produced, I think that it might be interesting to the reader to recall rapidly the most remarkable works of this kind in past times. Egypt incontestably gives us on this point the most complete instructions, and we can judge Egyptian colossal art with our own eyes. To all those who have studied it, Egyptian art has been the object of profound admiration, not only in view of the masses, the millions of kilograms moved by the Egyptian people, but on account of its concrete and majestic character, in design and in form, of the works which we see. We are filled with profound emotion in presence of these colossal witnesses, centuries old, of a past that to us is almost infinite, at whose feet so many generations, so many million existences, so many human glories have rolled in the dust. These granite beings, in their imperturbable majesty, seem to be still listening to the most remote antiquity. Their kindly and impassable glance seems to ignore the present and to be fixed upon an unlimited future. These impressions are not the result simply of beautiful spectacle, nor of the poetry of historic remembrances. They result from the character of the form and the expression of the work in which the design itself expresses after a fashion infinity. I have studied Egyptian art with the greatest attention. When I was twenty years old, I traveled in Egypt with the painters Jerome and Belli, and several other friends, and I may say that this country had a very considerable effect upon my taste for sculpture of the broad and decorative type. In 1868, I went back with Monsieur de Lesseps, and gazed again with the same pleasure on all those marvelous ruins, and my convictions grew stronger upon the principles which there are to be discovered. Assyrian art also presents specimens of colossal sculpture of the finest kind only its effect is less striking because the finest remaining types of this art are in bas-reliefs. The taste for colossal art certainly made its way into Greece, along with many other artistic traditions which came from Assyria, as well as from Egypt. Archaeologists have often asserted this relationship. Phidias executed two colossal statues, in which he succeeded in uniting material grandeur with a true ideal of beauty of form. The statue of Minerva in the Parthenon measured 37 feet, and that of the Olympian Jove, forty feet. They have both been regarded as masterpieces of Chris Elephantine sculpture, otherwise called sculpture in gold and ivory. All the ancient authors, Pausanus, Pliny, Cantillian, have spoken of them with much enthusiasm, and in terms which leave no doubt of the value of those works, and of the profound impression which they produced on the Grecian world. The other admired works of that period which have come down to us permit us to consider them good judges. The most celebrated colossal statue of antiquity was the Colossus of Rhodes. We may consider it as having been a very remarkable piece of work. 
independently of the fantastic legend of the ships which passed between its outspread legs. This legend, whose origin is not older than the 16th century, has been exploded by archaeologists. Nevertheless, we may add to the observations a demonstration founded on simple good sense. First, if the Colossus was placed with its legs apart above the water, when it was overthrown it would have fallen into the water, and the enormous fragments, representing caverns, of which Pliny speaks, would not have been gotten out, leaving within the stones themselves enormous, which he says he saw there. Second, the result of my personal studies show that the placing of a statue of this kind in an upright position would have been almost impossible, but that it would have been absolutely so if stones were placed in the body, which would result in bringing the center of gravity too high. After the Grecian epoch, we must pass on to modern times to find examples of colossal statues. The Jupiter Polubius of the Pretolino Villa, executed by John of Bologna, and the St. Charles Borromeo on the banks of Lake Maggiore may be referred to. It cannot be said that this last work is properly included under the head of colossal art. It is an ordinary statue enlarged, and its volume gives it its principal interest. The pedestal is deplorable, and nothing in the whole work shows either research into the principles of colossal art or a comprehension of them. Nevertheless, this work of art has a peculiar interest in virtue of its material execution. It is, I think, the first example of the use of repose copper mounted on iron trusses. In ancient times, metal beaten out into sheets had already been used, but it was used as a covering, or was modeled on a solid form of wood or stone. Gold, silver, and copper were thus employed in Grecian antiquity, and in the extreme orient. The statue of St. Charles Borromeo is the first known example of a statue of repose copper worked with the hammer inside and outside, and freely supported on iron beams. The work was executed in a somewhat coarse style, but it is interesting, and has the merit of being the result of a bold initiative. The copper is a little thin, measuring only a millimeter in thickness, and yet the whole work has stood until today, that is to say, for two centuries. All the other colossal statues in existence are entirely modern, that of Bavaria is the oldest. It measures 15.70 meters. Next was executed the colossal statue of the Virgin of Poi, which is 16 meters in height. And finally that of Arminius in Westphalia, which, including the sword which he rises towards the sky, is 28.39 meters in height. The object of this review of the colossal statues which have been produced up to the present time is to bring back their image to our eyes, and to enable us to deduce from them some principles which seem to be essential in colossal art. The understanding of these principles and their interpretation may vary somewhat according to the sentiments of the artist. Yet some of them seem to me to manifest themselves in a way which admits of no discussion. They are to be found, first, in the character, or the thought of the subject, which ought to be in harmony with the size of the work. Second, in the suitableness of the site and the surroundings of the monument. Third, in the understanding of the lines and the make-up which, in colossal works of art, are rendered necessary by the execution. On the first point, I will recall the words of M. Lasbazel, which I cited above, when he says that colossal statuary ought to be used only to symbolize figures of thoughts which are grand in themselves, and as far as possible, abstract. The immensity of form should be filled with the immensity of thought, and the spectator, at the sight of the great portions of the work, should be impressed, before all things else, with the greatness of the idea of which these ample forms are the envelope, without being obligated to have recourse to comparative measurements in order to feel himself moved. In regard to the choice of site, a study should be made of similar existing works in order clearly to perceive the most favorable conditions. The frame should lend itself to the subject. It may be made upon improved architectural effects. 
by the flights of stairs which lead up to the statue and contribute to the monumental character. But above all, a site favorable by its own nature should be sought. There is an instinct which ought to guide the artist, for he ought to turn nature to account in such a way as to make her contribute to the aspect of the monument. The neighborhood of large masses should be avoided. The artist ought to choose his site in such a way that the lines of the ground and the colorings of the background will become his assistance in heightening the proper appearance of his work and the impression which it is to produce. In regard to the execution of colossal works of art, I think, as I said above, that we find sure principles in the ancient works. The difficulty is to apply them to one's own age, that is to say, without servile imitation of the forms imagined by other epochs and other races. I may cite, for example, the principle of great simplicity in the movement and of the exterior lines. The gesture ought to be made plain by the profile to all the senses. The details of the lines ought not to arrest the eye. The breaks in the line should be bold, and such as are suggested by the general design. Beside the work should be as far as possible filled out, and should not present black spots or exaggerated recesses. The surfaces should be broad and simple, defined by a bold and clear design, accentuated in the important places. The enlargement of the details, or their multiplicity, is to be feared. By exaggerating the forms in order to render them more clearly visible, or by enriching them with details, we would destroy the proportion of the work. Finally, the model, like the design, should have a summarized character, such as one would give to a rapid sketch. Only it is necessary that this character should be the product of volition and study, and that the artist, concentrating his knowledge, should find the form and the line in its greatest simplicity. These same principles ought to be kept in mind in construction of the pedestal, for they exist in architecture. I could, if I were not afraid of being prolix, cite examples of remarkable edifices in which the enlargement of certain details, or the lack of simplicity in the lines, prevent the spectator from appreciating at first sight the monumental proportions of the edifice. These are subjects on which there might be much said. I thought that it would be well to touch lightly upon them, not with the pretension of laying down principles, but to show the thoughts which animated me the artistic considerations, and the ideals by which I have sought to be guided in my work. THE WORK ON THE STATUE Up to the present time, no statue has ever been executed of the extraordinary proportions of the Statue of Liberty. In order to form an idea of this work, which was without precedent, it was necessary to give the greatest attention to the means of execution. It was necessary to foresee the elements of solidity and the exigencies of transportation to America. Finally, it was necessary to seek to avoid heavy expenses into which one is rapidly drawn in a work of this kind, according to the methods employed. The examination of the various difficulties led us to adopt the system of hammered copper, which, from an artistic point of view, offers elements of excellence when it is well treated, which allows of a large subdivision in the pieces, and renders the transportation easy. We will examine the various phases of the work. The total height of the first model was 1.25 meters. This was a study model which was long sought and often recast. It is the model which has been reproduced in terracotta, the number of the reproductions being limited to 200. Each model was numbered and registered, and a large number of them were sold in aid of the subscription under the name of Model of the Committee. After this first study, I made the statue which measures from the head to the feet 2.8 meters, and in its entirety 2.85 meters. This statue, executed with rigid precision, was reproduced four times as large by the ordinary processes. The model, which was a result of this work, measured about 11 meters in total height. Placed in a large space, it could be taken in by the eye in its entirety, and the corrections to be made could still be noted. 
This statue was divided into a large number of sections destined to be reproduced separately at four times their size. After this last enlargement, changes were no longer possible. Now the sculptor could only aim at very great precision and at great care in the modeling of the surfaces, which were becoming enormous. It was necessary to study them in their simplicity and their nakedness, so that the form should be flowing and correct, without prominent details which would detract from the general appearance. In an immense workshop, specially constructed for the work, were to be seen four plain surfaces on which the work was carried on. They were encompassed with frames laid out in numbered divisions. Another similar frame, corresponding exactly to the one below, was fastened beneath the ceiling of the workshop. Lead wires and rulers hung all about the frames. On these frames, thus geometrically laid out, the sculptors executed, in wood and in plaster, enormous fragments of the statue. The sections of the model that they were to reproduce were arranged nearby under corresponding conditions between frames of one-fourth the size. The sculptors executed the enlargement by measurements taken with the compass on the lead wires and the rulers. They first laid out the general form with wooden beams covered with lath work. The wood was then covered with a coating of plaster. They verified the large measurements already established, and then executed the reproduction point by point, and finished the modeling of the surfaces. Each nail head and point marked requires six measurements, three on the model and three for the enlargement, without counting the verifying measurements. There were in each course about 300 large points and more than 1,200 secondary points, which represented for each course the work of establishing about 9,000 measurements. When a course was finished, the carpenters took its forms by means of boards cut in profile according to the form of the plaster. They were applied on the spot, placed one opposite to another, and crossed, thus forming pigeonholes, larger or smaller. Thus they took a sort of impression. In these wooden molds, or gabarits, the hammers pressed the sheets of copper by pressure with levers, and by hammering with mallets. The pieces of copper were finished by beating them with little hammers, and with rammers. The profile of the forms was again taken in detail with sheets of lead pressed upon the model, again working the copper according to the profiles. The pieces of copper were furnished from point to point with iron braces, intended to give them rigidity. These braces were forged in the form of the copper when the contour of the latter were completely modeled. Thus furnished, the pieces were carried to the mounting in the court, to be brought together and fastened upon the powerful trusswork of iron beams which served as support for the whole envelope of the statue. The core of this trusswork is formed by a sort of pylon which has four points of attachment. Each of these points is sustained by three bolted braces, 15 centimeters in diameter, which are made fast at a depth of eight meters in the masonry of the foundation to a frame of iron beams. The whole trusswork was designed and executed by the eminent constructing engineer, Monsieur Eiffel. This trusswork serves as a support for the copper form of the statue. The copper plates, kept in shape by iron bands, are supported by iron braces, which are cramped on to the central core. They do not bear in the least upon the lower plates, and their weight is always independent of all that is above or below. Exhaustive mathematical calculations were made upon the resisting power of the iron pieces, upon the center of gravity, and upon the action of high winds. The calculations were made by taking as a base the most powerful hurricanes which have been recorded either in America or in Europe. In regard to the preservation of the work, since all the elements of its construction are everywhere visible on the inside in all their details, it will be easily kept in good condition. To end this account, I ought to add to it a few bits of statistical information, although they had been published on various occasions. The whole work was done in the celebrated house of Gannet, Gauthier, and Company of Paris. The statue was constructed of copper sheets, two and a half millimeters in thickness. It measures 46.08 meters from the base to the top of the torch, 35.50 meters from below the plinth to the crown. 
34 meters from the heel to the top of the head. The forefinger is 2.45 meters in length, and 1.44 meters in circumference of the second joint. The nail measures 0.35 meters by 0.26 meters. The head is 4.40 meters in height. The eye is 0.65 meters in width. The nose is 1.12 meters in length. About 40 persons were accommodated in the head at the Universal Exposition of 1878. It is possible to ascend into the torch above the head. It will easily hold 12 persons. The total weight is about 200,000 kilos, of which 80,000 are copper and 120,000 iron. It represents an outlay of more than a million francs, including gifts, gratuitous work, and the losses of all those who gave their devoted assistance to the work. The colossal statues which have been executed up to the present time are far from the proportions of the Statue of Liberty. Yet we must not expect its appearance to be colossal when it is in place. In the immense picture which will surround it, it will appear simply in harmony with the whole, and have the normal aspect of a statue in a public place. It should be thus, because its part is not to appear extraordinary in itself, but to connect itself intimately with an extraordinary whole. The statue was born for this place, which inspired its conception. May God be pleased to bless my efforts and my work, and to crown it with the success, the duration, and the moral influence which it ought to have. I shall be happy to have been able to consecrate the best years of my life to being the interpreter of the noble hearts whose dream has been the realization of the monument to the French-American Union. Bartholdi End of the Statue of Liberty Enlightening the World by Bartholdi Recording by Todd